Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Inna alhamdulillah nahmaduhu wa nasta'inuhu wa nastaghfiruh. Wa na'udhu billahi min shururi anfusina wa min sayyati a'malina. Man yahdihillahu falamudillalah. Wa man yudlilhu falahadiyalah. Wa ashadu an la ilaha illallahu wahdahu la sharikalah. Wa ashadu anna muhammadan abduhu wa rasuluh. Sallallahu alayhi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallama tasliman kathira. Amma ba'd. My dear brothers and sisters, assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. So we're at the end of hadith number 38 and the end of hadith number 38 is where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says and I do not hesitate to do anything as I hesitate to take the soul of the believer for he hates death and I hate to harm him and I hate to harm him. So the first topic of discussion we'll be having tonight is is it permissible for a believer to hate death or not and will this disqualify him from being from the awliya of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so in this hadith clearly we see that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is talking about the awliya in this hadith and he says that they will hate death and this shows that for a believer it is permissible to hate death now Imam al-Shawkani rahimahullah when he goes on to explain this concept he goes on to explain what parts of death is a believer actually allowed to hate and what parts is he not allowed to hate so he goes on to mention that in terms of what he is allowed to hate, then he is allowed to hate the fact that perhaps his deeds are not enough and that he will be meeting Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And he is allowed to hate the fact that he's going to be going through a lot of pain and suffering before the death. This is what they call Sakaratul Maut. And the Sakaratul Maut are the final stages of death where a person is alive. When he goes through the natural process of death, those are called Sakaratul Maut. And that is when the body becomes very, very weak, doing anything becomes very, very painful. And there's just a, a, a strong remnants of pain inside the body. And the believer is allowed to, to, to dislike that fact. Now, should a believer really dislike that fact or should he actually appreciate it? It is narrated from Umar ibn Abdul Aziz, uh, is that he used to say, I do not wish for Allah to make my death easy, but rather I wish to make the, the ending of my life difficult. And he was asked, why would you wish for something like that? He said, this is the last chance for the believer to be purified in this world before he meets Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is the last chance for the believer to be purified in this world before he meets Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now, what part of death should a believer not dislike? What part of death should a believer not dislike? So for example, a believer, he, you know, he, he's too attached to his family and he doesn't want to go to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala just yet. He's too attached to his wealth and he's not ready to go to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala yet. He's too attached to the comforts and luxuries of this world and he doesn't want to go to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala yet. These are the points that Imam al-Shawkani rahimahullah mentions. Now what's important to understand is that for the believer, regardless of his state his, of his fear at the time of death, when the angel of death comes and gives him the glad tidings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then all of his worries and all of his stress will go away. And those are the verses when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about the, the believers when he says, وَلَا خَوْفٌ عَلَيْهِمْ وَلَا هُمْ يَحْزَنُونَ Those are generally referring to the believers when they die. That at that time they will have no grief, they will have no sorrow because they have received the uh, glad tidings from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now we move on to the last section, and that is, what does it mean that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala hesitates? Right? It's a, it's a very strange word. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala hesitating, why would Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala hesitate? And that is why when you see the, the scholars that did the Sharh of Sahih al-Bukhari, where this hadith is narrated, they had multiple opinions as to what this means. Some of them are very far-fetched, and some of them, you know, sort of make sense. So let us go through some of those opinions. So the first opinion that is mentioned, and Imam al-Shawkani states this, he says when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala hesitates, it's not a real hesitation like we hesitate, right? A person hesitates out of fear, out of, you know, being scared or of not being sure. 
But with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's hesitation, it is uh, a hesitation in action. That at the time of death, if the believer makes dua at that time, then that could change his qadr, that could change the time when he is, when he is supposed to die. And uh, the part just before this in this hadith, it was about the, the wali of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That if he used to make dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah would grant it to him. And this is what Imam al-Shawkani says, that if the wali of Allah was to make dua at that time and say, Oh Allah, you know, delay my death, or he was to do something that would delay his death. Does anyone know what the Prophet mentioned? Gives people a longer life. He mentioned one particular thing that if you were to do this, it extends your life. I want to give someone else a chance. Someone that usually doesn't answer. Ali, Ahlam Salam. Sadaqah? No. Something more specific. Our brother over here. Ahsant. Keeping good relationships with one's family. Silatul Raham. He says that nothing, nothing changes dua, sorry, nothing changes qadr like dua, and nothing extends one's life like keeping good family relations, keeping good family relations. So if the wali of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was to do this, then this would extend his life, and then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would change what was destined for him into a new destination, into a new uh, destiny, into a new destiny. A second interpretation is that some say that the hesitation is on behalf of the angel of death, is on behalf of the angel of death. That the angel of death, you know, he doesn't want to harm the soul of the, the wali of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So it is the angel of death that hesitates because he knows he has to take the, the soul, but at the same time, it is, you know, something that is disliked for the wali of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But eventually he fulfills the command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So it is a hesitation of the angel of death that is attributed to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That is attributed to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Number four. Ibn Hajar, uh, sorry, this is number three, the opinion number three. This is the opinion of Imam Ibn Hajar rahimahullah ta'ala. He says this hadith is addressed to humans and put in a fashion that they would understand. Ibn Hajar states, for example, when the father wants to hit his son, uh, wants to hit his son to keep him from some wrongdoing, his compassion for his son makes him hesitate just a little. However, when he remembers the overall need of what he is going to do, he goes ahead and hits the child. Allah has expressed taking his wali's soul in this fashion so that its meaning could be clear to everyone. Although Allah does not wish to harm his wali, the overall good of taking his wali's soul must take precedence and that will cause his wali to die. So this hesitance is in the fact that something needs to be done, but at the same time there's a reason why it shouldn't be done. And then that conflict of interest, that is what is referring to hesitation. That is what is referring to hesitation. Opinion number four. This is the opinion of, of Al-Karmani. He states that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes the, the soul of the wali in stages. That the, the wali is given time to prepare for his death. And these stages is what is referred to as hesitation. Whereas all other deaths, they happen instantaneously. They happen instantaneously. Number five. Ibn Salah, he stated that the meaning is not that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala hesitates at all. Instead, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes the soul of the believer in a way that is similar to one who is hesitating when he is doing something that he dislikes. Because Allah loves his slave, he does not want to do anything to harm him, but Allah knows that this matter will be fulfilled. However, this hadith makes it clear that Allah does not take the soul of a wali in order to disgrace the wali. Instead, he takes his soul in order to elevate the person and move him into a life which will be much greater and more pleasing. And then the last opinion is that of Ibn Taymiyyah. The last opinion that we'll take is that of Ibn Taymiyyah, rahimahullah ta'ala. 
And he goes on to say, so Allah wants him to die according to what he has decreed, yet he does not want him to harm him, his servant through death. In one sense, then death is desirable, and in another sense, it is undesirable. This is the reality of this hesitation. When something is wanted due to one reason, and at the same time not wanted due to another, it is something about which one would hesitate. And this is very similar to uh, an opinion that we stated previously, but those were the words of Ibn Saymiyyah. Those were the words of Ibn Saymiyyah. Now, in terms of concluding this hadith, in terms of concluding this hadith, the first thing we need to understand, uh, for those of you that attended Wednesday night's halaqa, you know, we went on a, a bit of a rant, you know, completely annihilating the, the Sufis. And I wanted to, to give a, a big disclaimer on this, that, you know, the, the, the Sufis that we were speaking about on Wednesday night, you know, those were the extreme Sufis. As you learned from some of their statements, you know, the one that said that Allah is the slave and the slave is Allah. I mean, this is clear-cut kufr, right? Those are the extreme Sufis that we were talking about. Whereas the concept of spirituality, and I hope this point got across on Wednesday night, is something actually from Islam. But like every other aspect of our, you know, ibadah, whether it is salah, whether it is wudu, whether it is zakat, there are, there's a methodology to it. And similarly, there's a methodology to purifying our souls. And that is what, you know, a study of the statements and actions of the Messenger of Allah وسلم, is all about. Now we mentioned uh, the methodology that the Messenger of Allah وسلم, set for us. We said it was in three steps. Who remembers what it was on Wednesday night? There are three steps of purifying your soul. What were the three steps? Sorry? No, not that. You've gone too far. Come back a little bit. Starts off with something very simple. What did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mention as the first thing that the awliya do? No. Sorry? No. <laughs> the first thing in this hadith, what is mentioned? Go ahead. No, that's their description. So they have to have Iman and they have to have Taqwa. Obligatory deeds. So the first step in purifying your soul is doing those things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made mandatory upon you. Doing those things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made mandatory upon you. Then the second phase of purifying the soul is fighting the nafs in terms of what is haram. Fighting the nafs in terms of what is haram. And that is why a lot of people get confused between fighting the soul in terms of what is haram or doing voluntary deeds. Which one should take precedence? In terms of the methodology of the Prophet wasallam, after a person does his faraid, he does his obligatory deeds, then the next step is to purify the soul from the haram things. To purify the soul from the haram things. And that is to establish a solid foundation. So the faraid, they establish the foundation, but the sins, they're like cracks in that foundation. And in order for that foundation to be solid, to be built upon, that is when the sins need to be eliminated. And then the voluntary deeds, and that is step number three, come along. And that is when they build on that foundation of strength, which is the faraid, after the sins have been eliminated. And that is when the believer truly becomes from the awliya of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we mentioned that the three stages of the wali that uh, he goes through that we mentioned from Suratul Fatir. Um, a second thing that I wanted to mention, a second thing that I wanted to mention is that in terms of the awliya of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we mentioned that the fifth and last category of the awliya of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the fourth category out of the five categories that we mentioned, the fourth category were the sahaba of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And the sahaba radiallahu anhum are from, you know, the greatest uh, uh, of awliya of our ummah, of our ummah, they're from the greatest of awliya. And it is not possible that someone that curses the Sahaba and mocks the Sahaba and belittles the Sahaba will ever be considered from the awliya. And that is what this hadith is actually mentioning, that whoever belittles, whoever mocks, whoever you know, fights the awliya of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, 
In reality, he's fighting Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself. And this is a very important concept that living in a day and age, you know, the status of the Sahaba is not recognized, it's not retained. But part of our faith is the love of the Sahaba. A person cannot have Iman until he loves the Sahaba. And that is a part of our faith as well. A third point to conclude on is that Ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah, he has a very nice quote that I want to share with you. He says, the awliya of Allah have no visible signs that distinguish them from others. It is not necessary that they wear a particular dress or shun some clothing that is permissible. They do not necessarily shave their heads, cut their hair short or clip it, as long as it is within the permissible limits. There is a saying that states that there are many pious men in plain clothing and many heretics in religious garb. The awliya of Allah may come from any sector of this ummah of Muhammad What is required to be from them is that one stays away from every doctrine which is unjustified and eschew any practice which is immoral. They may be scholars of the Qur'an, masters of knowledge, men of sword and traders and craftsmen and industrialists, farmers and so forth. Allah has mentioned different groups of them in the verse, Very your Lord knows that you do stand to pray at night a little, less than two-thirds of the night, or half the night, or a third of the night, and do a party of those with you. And Allah measures the night and the day. He knows that you are unable to pray the whole night, so He has turned to you in mercy. So recite of the Qur'an as much as may be easy for you. He knows that there will be some amongst you that are sick, others traveling through the land, seeking Allah's bounty, and yet others fighting in Allah's cause. So recite as much of the Qur'an as you may that is easy for you, and perform the Salah, and give the Zakah, and lend to Allah a goodly loan. And whatever good you send before you for yourselves, you will certainly find it. And Allah... Uh, uh, you will for certainly find it with Allah, better and greater in reward. And seek forgiveness of Allah, verily Allah is the oft-forgiving, the most merciful. And that is the verse in Surah Al-Muzammil. So here Ibn Taymiyyah, he makes uh, a very important point over here. That, you know, a modern-day concept of awliya is that, you know, they have a certain garment, that they'll only wear white clothing, and they'll only have like a, a, a green turban on, right? These are the awliya of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But in reality, the awliya of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not about the way that they dress or the way that they present themselves, but rather it is about how much Iman and Taqwa they have, how much Iman and Taqwa they have. And it's not about a particular trade, they could be anything in terms of their trade, but that Iman and Taqwa has to come through, and that is what uh, is important. And then the last point, uh, just some statements from the predecessors. Khabab ibn al-Arath, he says, get as close to Allah as you can, and realize you do not get closer to Him by anything, except that that is more beloved to Him than His own speech. In general, the one who loves another loves to hear uh, the other's speech. Uthman ibn Affan, he said that if your hearts become pure, then you will never have enough of the words of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Ibn Mas'ud who said, whoever loves the Qur'an loves Allah and His Messenger. And this is another sign of the awliya of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that we mentioned on Wednesday, is that they love the Qur'an. And it's impossible to be you know, from the awliya of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, yet not have an affiliation with the Qur'an. And the statement of Khabab ibn al-Arat, you know, he, he gives a fi'l amr, he gives a commandment. He says, get as close as you can to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, because that is what you know, one is longing for. And you'll not get closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with anything than getting close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through his very speech. Than getting close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through his very speech. And that is the conclusion of hadith number 38. Now we go on into hadith number 39. And hadith number 39 is the hadith that we mentioned after the salah. It is those people that are not held accountable for their actions. 
This hadith is very heavy in terms of, the, of its fiqh. That in fact, when you look at this hadith, this is a foundational hadith in like all chapters of usul al-fiqh. Because all of it comes down to when is the slave of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accountable for his deeds and when is he not held accountable for his deeds. So those of you that have pen and paper or have phones or have something to take notes with, it's a very good idea to take notes on this hadith bi-dhillahi ta'ala. An ibn Abbasin radiallahu anhuma anna Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam aqal inna Allah tajawaza li an ummati al-khata wa nisiyan wa mastukruhu alayhi. Hadith uh, al-Hasan al-Rawahu ibn Majah wal-Bayhaqi wa ghayruhuma. On the authority of Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhuma, the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam said, On my behalf, Allah has pardoned my nation what is done mistakenly out of forgetfulness and under duress. And under duress. This is the hadith of ibn Ma uh, narrated by Ibn Majah al-Bayhaqi and others. So the first thing we want to understand about this hadith is that this hadith has you know, a plethora of different versions, a myriad of different versions, many, many different versions. And the vast majority of those versions, in fact, are actually weak. In fact, the version that Imam al-Nawi included over here, the, the harf li, you know, for me, where he's referring to the Messenger of Allah that extra addition is actually considered a very, very weak narration. It's considered a very, very weak addition. And in this particular hadith, you actually learn the importance of al-mutaba'a, meaning that when you look at different versions of hadith, at what time are you allowed to use them together to make one strong hadith? And in what situations are you not allowed? So for those of you that want a you know, good foundation of mutaba and how to, you know, when can one hadith strengthen another, I would definitely suggest studying this hadith in detail because it's a very good foundation to, to establish that. Now in conclusion, there are versions of this hadith that are authentic, but the vast majority of the versions that, of this hadith are inauthentic, especially the ones that have li, where the Messenger of Allah says, for me. Because it makes it seem that the Messenger of Allah, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala pardoned the Ummah due to the sake of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa right? And not due to the actual causes themselves. And this addition is actually weak. It goes against the, a lot of the narrations of the Tabi'een. So the first thing we want to look at is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has pardoned. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has pardoned. And this goes back to a concept we've been talking about over the past couple of weeks where the, the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala conflicts with the justice of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala conflicts with the justice of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And almost always, the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will always take precedence. The mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will always take precedence. And this is one of those hadith that indicates that. That here, you know, the people are in the situation, the believers are in the situation where they are doing an action, right? They are doing an action, yet due to the extraordinary circumstances, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not hold them accountable. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not hold them accountable. And this is, you know, always important to understand that whatever, you know, mistakes we may have committed, whatever shortcomings we may have, we're dealing with one who is more merciful and more compassionate and more loving towards us than our own parents. Now I want you to think about our, your relationship with your parents, you know, how many mistakes you've made. From a young child, you know, breaking plates, to breaking the TV, to breaking other things in the house, to sneaking out in the middle of the night, to taking their car without permission, to all of those things that you may have done. Or maybe, you know, I'm the only one that did those things. <laughs> I don't know. But the fact that our parents still forgave us and still love us, right? And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes us as more loving than our parents towards us, right? That's something that's very important to understand. And that is, you know, a spiritual element of this hadith that is not often mentioned. That our interaction with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, while there is an element of justice to it, 
then the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is more encompassing and more involved than the justice of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now a key point of conflict in this hadith is what exactly is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala pardoning? So to understand this concept, is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala pardoning the sin that is involved when those things happen? Is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala pardoning the obligation or requirement to compensate for those sins? Is that what is pardoned? Or number three, is it both of them together? Is it both of them together? Now in usul al-fiqh, this one concept of what is you know, embodied in this hadith is known as umum al-muqtada. Umum al-muqtada. That what is actually meant by this hadith? Is it the absolute minimum requirement that is pardoned? Is it the absolute maximum requirement that is pardoned? Or what is actually pardoned? Now, in terms of the Hanafi ulama, they said that it is the absolute minimum requirement that is pardoned. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala only, He pardons the sin related to it. But in terms of everything else related to it, then the slave of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is still responsible. The slave of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is still responsible. And we'll be taking a lot of practical lessons uh, or practical examples for this. Then the other three madhahib from the Maliki ulama, the Shafi'i ulama, the Hanbali ulama, they went in an exact other direction. They said, no, if you look at, you know, the text of the Quran and the Sunnah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to pardon us the most. So not only does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala pardon the sin, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also pardons the obligation that perhaps may come with that sin, the obligation that may come with that sin. Now while the three other madhahib actually stated this, that both aspects are pardoned, when it actually comes down to the, the nitty-gritty details, when you get into actual thick examples, you will see that all, that all of the madhahib in, in actuality are in agreement. All of the madhahib in actuality are in agreement. So let us start off by taking a very simple example. In the month of Ramadan, okay, someone forgets that they are fasting and they accidentally eat. And they accidentally eat. Now, the fiqh ruling over here according to Imam Abu Hanifa's madhab, Imam Shafi's madhab, and Imam Ahmed Ibn Hanbal's madhab is what? What is their ruling on this? That if you accidentally eat in Ramadan, what happens? No problem. No problem. No problem. Not no problem. <laughs> don't continue eating. You have to stop eating. But you don't need to make up the fast. You don't need to make up the fast. That's their ruling over here. Imam Malik, rahimahullah, he differentiated between the um, recommended fast and the obligatory fasts. He said the obligatory fasts, in this situation, you actually need to make up the fast. You need to make up the fast. Whereas the recommended fast, then in those situations, you don't need to make up those fasts, but you just stop and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has pardoned it. Now, what if a person was to intentionally eat? What happens in that situation? If a person intentionally eats, not only is his fast nullified, but then the Hanafi ulama, they said that he has the maximum kafara over here. The maximum kafara, either to free a slave or to fast uh, 60 days consecutively, or, you know, to, to, to feed 60 people, or to feed 60 people if he is unable to do so. The other madhahib, they said no, he just has to remake up that fast. He has to make, remake up that fast, right? So it shows you that the key thing over here that's going to come into play is a person's intention. And this is where the taqwa of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is very important. Because sometimes, you know what, we may think, let me eat some food. You know, if someone catches me, I'm just going to say it was a mistake. 
right? You will fool the people, right? You'll very easily fool the people because they'll give you the benefit of the doubt. But you won't be able to fool Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is what we need to be conscious of. And that is what the basis of this hadith actually is. That you know what elements of the sharia are pardoned due to forgetfulness, due to making a mistake, and due to being coerced into doing something. So that concept of umum al-muqtada, that is what is referred to. Does the sharia max, uh, pardon the maximum or the minimum? And then what you'll come to see in conclusion is that the reality is that the sharia came to pardon the absolute minimum in this situation. Unless there's a specific text to prove otherwise. Unless there's a specific text to prove otherwise. So I know generally we speak uh, not ill of the Hanafi ulama, but we, we speak of their fiqh in jest a lot of the times because they have you know, a lot of strange opinions. But this, in this one situation, you know, they knocked it out of the park, mashallah, tabarakallah. And you know, they were uh, you know, on point in this one. So now let's move on to the continuation of the hadith. The Messenger of Allah وسلم, says, for my nation. So the nation of Muhammad وسلم, has been pardoned. Why is this point significant? This point is significant because in the previous nations, they were not pardoned for their mistakes. They were not pardoned for their forgetfulness. They were not pardoned for the things that they were forced to do. And this is why the Messenger of Allah وسلم, specifically mentioned this. And this is from the, the, the mercy and blessing of Allah that Allah does not hold us accountable. Now, if you look inside Sahih Muslim, Imam Muslim rahimahullah, he actually talks about the revelation of the last few verses of Surah Al-Baqarah. Where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at that point, He talks about a dua that the believers make. رَبَّنَا لَا تُؤَخِذْنَا إِنَّ نَسِينَا أَوْ أَخْطَأْنَا That, O oh Allah, do not hold us accountable for those things that we have forgotten, nor for those things that we have done mistakenly. And the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, He said, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has responded to your dua. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has responded to your dua. So when we talk about... Uh, you know, the, the khasais, those things that are exclusive to the ummah of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa This is one of the things that is exclusive to this ummah. That Allah had mercy upon this ummah by not holding us accountable for the things that we do out of uh, forgetfulness or as a mistake. Uh, or that we were coerced to do as well. Now, the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa goes on to say, what is done mistakenly. How do, we, how do we actually define what is done as a mistake? How do we define what is done as a mistake? So according to the scholars of Usul al-Fiqh, <coughs> A mistake is a deed or a word which springs forth from a man without his intention. It is a deed or a word which springs forth from a man without his intention as a result of carelessness by his directly pursuing a matter which is other than the one uh, intended by him. So it is a deed or word which springs forth from a man without his intention as a result of carelessness by his directly pursuing a matter which is other than one intended by him. So a man intends to do one thing, but he ends up doing something else. That's in summary what the statement is saying. You make the intention to do something, but in reality something else ends up happening. And that is the definition of a mistake. That is the definition of a mistake. Now, is there a differentiation between a mistake and forgetfulness? Is there a differentiation between a mistake and forgetfulness? Who can answer this for me? Is there a difference in the rules of fiqh between a mistake and forgetfulness? Danish, you're shaking your head. Go ahead. You mean in the ruling or you mean in like the, themselves? L answer both of them for me. <laughs> so in the ruling, I guess from the hadith, they wouldn't be. Uh, and in the end of themselves, they are different because um, in, in, uh, in when you're forgetting something, you're not doing something, right? It's a lack of an action. Uh -huh. Whereas, whereas uh, a mistake is like you're actually doing something, but it's something that you didn't intend to do. 
Okay. So one is right, one is wrong. So in terms of, the, the, obviously, the, you know, there is a clear differentiation between mistake and forgetfulness, and that's why the Prophet ﷺ differentiated them. And the fact that the Messenger of Allah ﷺ differentiated them, some of the scholars use this as a point to indicate that even in the rulings, there's a differentiation. Even in the rulings, there's a differentiation. So let's go back to the example of the person that is fasting. So the person that is fasting, we said that if he eats out of forgetfulness, then according to the majority, there is no sin upon him. He does not need to remake the fast up. Correct? We all agreed with that? Now let's move on to scenario number two, where the person makes a mistake. So for example, he's out in Canmore, and you know, it's Ramadan, and he's out hiking, he doesn't have a watch, he doesn't have a cell phone, and he sees the sky getting very dark. So he's like, you know what? You know, it must be Maghrib time. Let me eat something. He gets back to his car. Lo and behold, there's still another like hour left till iftar time. Does this individual need to remake his fast up? And is there any sin upon him? Who's going to answer this question for him, for me? One is easy and one is tricky. Go ahead, our brother in the back. Ahsan, fantastic. So there's no sin upon him due to this hadith. Remember we said that the absolute minimum is what the sharia pardons. The absolute minimum is what the sharia pardons. But when there's no text, then he's still responsible for the mistake. He's still responsible for the mistake. So therefore, in this situation, there's no sin upon him, but he still has to make up that fast at a later date. He still has to make up that fast at a later date. Now, a question arises. Why does the person that makes a mistake need to make up the fast, but the person that forgetful doesn't need to make up a fast? What's the answer to that? Go ahead. That's one way of looking at it, but I need something more clear cut. There was intention. When you forgot, when you ate, there was Ramadan, you didn't have the intention to eat. But okay. Matter, did have the intention. Fantastic. Wonderful argument, but I'll consider that a secondary argument. Yes. I need something even more explicit. First man, he mistake, but he, he, he complete the whole fasting. So there's, there's a second man. After he eats by mistake, he continues fasting. Earlier he did. <laughs> no, I need something more explicit. You guys are missing a fundamental point that I mentioned. Go ahead. It's part of human nature to forget. Okay, but it's not part of human nature to make a mistake? I'm going to cut you off. Uh, it's, it's a good argument, but it's not what I'm looking for. No. You guys are missing uh, something very, very easy. In our deen, you know, when do we blindly accept something? When you don't know. <laughs> when you don't know, you should ask. No. Because the Prophet said so. That is the answer. <laughs> the Prophet gave a clear hadith that the one who eats by mistake, let him continue you know, his fast and he does not repeat the day. That is why, you know, that is the situation for the one that forgets. And this goes back, this is why I'm telling you, it's very important to take notes in these halakas. Because if you're not catching the nuances, you're not going to keep track of this. So, we said when we talk about Umum al-Muqtada, the summary of Umum al-Muqtada is that the Hanafis knocked it out of the park, that the Sharia only pardons the absolute minimum up and until there's a text to prove otherwise. Up and until there's a text to prove otherwise. So in the case of forgetfulness, there's a text to prove otherwise, right? That he's pardoned for, his fa uh, for the sin and he does not make up the fast. 
Whereas for the one that is mistaken, there is no text to, to get him out of his situation. So if you take the concept of Umum al-Muqtada that we were talking about, then in that situation, there is no sin upon them because this is what the hadith says. But in terms of the follow-up of the action, the person is responsible. The person is responsible. Right? Everyone clear on that now? Fantastic. So now, let us move on to forgetfulness. How do we define a nisyan? So a nisyan is defined as ignorance by necessity and not on account of ailment, of what a person used to know despite his having knowledge of other things, despite his having knowledge of other things. So ignorance by necessity and not on account of ailment of what a person used to know despite his having knowledge of other things. The technical definition, again, very complicated. To simplify, you have knowledge of the information, but you do not recollect it at the time you need to recollect it. Think of it at exam time, you know, you've studied for hours, and had it not been exam time, you would have known the answer. But the fact that it is exam time, it completely slips your mind. That is what the definition of forgetfulness is. That is what the definition of forgetfulness is. So that is how forgetfulness is defined, and this also comes into play. So now let's take some details that talk about mistakes, uh, the difference between mistakes and forgetfulness. And we'll have four, you know, scenarios for this. Scenario one, or understanding number one. If a person unintentionally failed to perform an obligatory act, then he's still obliged to perform that obligatory act and he has not been resolved of that responsibility. Okay, so let's understand that. There is an obligatory act that you need to do and you didn't do it because you forgot. Out of forgetfulness, you need to remake that obligation up. You need to remake that obligation up. What's the clearest example of this? Salah, fantastic. The Messenger of Allah وسلم, he says that whoever sleeps through a salah or forgets about a salah, then let him remake that salah up as soon as he remembers. Let him remake that salah up as soon as he remembers. Okay? So we move on to number two. If due to a mistake or forgetfulness, a person performs a forbidden act that does not involve the destruction of any property or wealth or violation of rights, then there is no punishment or penalty upon him. For example, if a person drinks an alcoholic beverage, believing that it was non-alcoholic, then there is no sin upon him, nor is there any punishment for him. Nor is there any punishment for him. Okay? So this is a person who drinks something out of, by mistake, thinking that you know, it's permi completely permissible, but it turns out at the end that it was an intoxicant. It turns out that it was an intoxicant. In this situation, as long as there's no property destroyed, as long as there's no violation of anyone's rights, then there is no sin and there's nothing that needs to be made up. There's nothing that needs to be made up. Now, I don't know for those of you that have been following uh, my Facebook posts, but uh, I actually witnessed an incident like this. This was uh, when, when I met Sheikh Yasir Qadi for uh, the first time post Medina. Uh, we were going out for dinner, all the, the restaurants were closed, so we end up going to his hotel, we're in the lobby just chilling, and he orders a pina colada, and he explicitly said, virgin pina colada. Virgin pina colada meaning that there's no alcohol in it whatsoever. At that time I had no idea what that meant, I eventually learned that's what it meant. Now his drink, and I just ordered like a regular coke, his drink comes, he's having his pina colada, and like sip by sip, his speech is getting slurred, he's acting very funny, <laughs> And it was just like the funniest experience of my life. Because someone who's like, for those of you that have met Sheikh Yasir Qadi, you know, very straight to the point, very academic, very reserved to a certain degree. And this is like, you know, let loose, clowning around, joking around. Um, 
so that was like a, a story that would apply to him over here, that he had no idea that it was alcoholic. Because I mean, as a Muslim, if you've never consumed alcohol, you don't know what it smells like, you don't know what it tastes like when it's mixed in with other flavors. Jazakallah khair. It's water, right? It's not alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, person, yeah, I start slurring in my speech. Um, you know, person not held accountable in that situation. So anything that's done by mistake, the point in the, in the point number two was that as long as there's no property destroyed, then even if you do something haram by mistake, there's no accountability to it. Now let's move on to point number three. If due to a mistake or forgetfulness, a person performs a forbidden act that does involve the destruction of any property or wealth or violation of rights, then he is responsible for the act that he has committed. For example, if a pilgrim hid, uh, hunts and kills an animal, either forgetting that he is in the state of ihram or out of ignorance of the ruling, he still must perform the expiation for the act that he has committed, for the act that he has committed. So over here, you know, generally we hear a person is excused due to ignorance, right? Something that's very commonly heard. In the Sharia, a person is excused due to, is excused of the sin due to his ignorance. But in terms of the consequence, he's not excused. So this person that's in the haram, it's haram for him to hunt. A person in the haram is not allowed to hunt whatsoever. So now if he hunts either out, for, out of forgetfulness or out of ignorance, then in that situation, he's still required to give the kafara. He's still required to give the kafara, whether he knew about it or not, whether he knew about it or not. So to take this to another example. A person is married and it's the month of Ramadan and they're meant to stay away from their wife. They're meant to stay away from their wife. And he's ignorant of the ruling, right? He's ignorant of the ruling that it's not permissible to have marital relations during the daytime in the Ramadan. If a person has marital relationships at that time, break down what happens in this situation. Break down for me what happens in this situation. Go ahead. Both of them didn't know? Or just the Good question. Good question. Good question. Fantastic question. For our discussion to make it easy, we'll say both of them were ignorant. Now you're lost. <laughs> you do. Just try. You know the answer. Very easy. No, no. You're going to go for it. You know, the Prophet says that, you know, once the, the Prophet puts on his, uh, his armor, he doesn't take it off till the battle is over. You raised your hand, you're in battle now. So the two things we're looking at, one is in terms of, is there sin upon him? And number two, is there any obligation on him afterwards? Because he was ignorant of this ruling. There's no sin, but he has to make up. Fantastic. This is according to the majority, this is the ruling. That there is no sin upon him because he was ignorant. So that is uplifted from him. But the fact that he still committed this, he has the obligation of fulfilling the kafara. He has the obligation of fulfilling the kafara. Now we move on to point number four. If a person performs an act unintentionally or out of forgetfulness that would normally require a prescribed punishment, that aspect of non-intention or forgetfulness would be sufficient to remove the punishment for him. However, he may have to fulfill other requirements that are different from the prescribed punishment. As is the case when a Muslim mistakenly kills another Muslim. When a Muslim mistakenly kills another Muslim. So in this situation, let's understand the scenario. We're talking about in those situations where you're living in an Islamic state and there's the had punishment for a particular action, right? And a person, he does something mistakenly over here. He does something mistakenly over here. What happens to him 
in terms of those three scenarios, in terms of those three scenarios, in terms of sin, the implementation of the had, and in terms of obligation afterwards. So over here, what the majority is stating is that the first two, a person is, uh, is relieved from. He is relieved from the sin and is relieved from the punishment of the had. He's relieved from the punishment of the had. However, depending on the scenario, then he may have an obligation afterwards. He may have an obligation afterwards. A concluding remark relating to all of these things. Something that is not discussed over here but is relevant is the concept of ijtihad. The concept of ijtihad. And that is when a person is able to make ijtihad and they make ijtihad but it is wrong. Where does it fall under this, these categories? Where does it fall under these categories? Would he be considered forgetful? Would he be considered a person that makes a mistake? What happens in this situation? For the person, the mujtahid that makes a mistake, in fact, he is not even involved in this hadith altogether. So for example, a person has the right of ijtihad and it's time to pray. He's in a place that he cannot see the sun. He's indoors somewhere. His compass is not working whatsoever. So he prays in a particular direction, trying his utmost best to make his ijtihad to figure out you know, which way the direction of the qibla is. He ends up praying in that direction. But then later on, someone else comes and says, you know what, I've been praying here for a long time. And it turns out that you've prayed in the exact opposite direction. You've prayed in the exact opposite direction. In this situation, the person that tried his best, made his ijtihad, and he was wrong, he does not need to repeat his prayer. He does not need to repeat his prayer. Who would need to repeat their prayer? The person that didn't bother trying. The person says, you know what, who cares, it's no big deal what direction I pray in. Let me pray in this direction. And then it turns out that he was wrong, then he would have to make up uh, his salah. Number two, if the person is a mujtahid, and he too, you know, is, does not have the intention of trying to find the right direction, then he too would have to make up his, uh, his salah. We'll take questions in a bit. So the three criterion that are, are required over here, the three criterion that are required over here for a mujtahid to be pardoned for his mistake. Number one, He's trying to follow the example of the Messenger of Allah Number one, he's trying to follow the example of the Messenger of Allah Number two, he's tried his utmost best to fulfill it. He's tried his utmost best to fulfill, you know, to, 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 to find the correct answer. He's tried his utmost best to require the, the correct answer. And then number three, there is no other recourse for him except to follow his ijtihad. There is no other recourse for him except to follow his ijtihad. Then in that situation, the mujtahid, not only is he pardoned for his mistake, but he's still rewarded. He's still rewarded. The Messenger of Allah he said, the mujtahid, when he's correct, he gets two rewards. One for trying and one for being correct. And the mujtahid, when he's incorrect, he gets one reward for trying at the very least. He gets one reward for the trying at the very least. Now it brings us to the discussion. Can I get a tissue by the way? Someone doesn't mind. When is forgetfulness not an excuse? When is forgetfulness not an excuse? Jazakallah khair. Thank you very much. The scholars mention that if a person is himself the cause of his own forgetfulness or of an act that he could have avoided, then he is not excused. Then he is not excused. So if he's the cause of his own forgetfulness, uh, or he could have avoided the act, but he didn't, then he is not excused by ignorance. He is not excused by ignorance. Let me give you an example. A person is out walking somewhere, and you know what? They uh, come across a dog, 
and the dog licks them and you know gets the, 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 their, their clothes dirty. And the person says to themselves, you know what, I'll clean it later. I'll clean it later. It's not a big deal. When the time for Salah comes, I'll clean it at that time. Time for Salah comes and he completely forgets that, you know what, I was supposed to wipe off the, the, this dirt that I have on my clothes. This person, due to his own fault, he is not excused due to his forgetfulness. He's not excused due to his forgetfulness, right? So in that situation, when that Salah that he ends up praying, it's not valid. There's no sin upon him, but he has to make up that Salah. He has to make up that Salah. Whereas another case scenario, you know, person, he's tried his utmost best to remove, you know, the, actually the saliva of the dog is a difficult example. But let's just say, you know, it's like dog feces, right? You walked in dog feces. And you've tried your utmost best to remove it. Time for Salah comes. And then in Salah, you're in Tashahud, right? And you're like, man, what's that smell, right? And you realize that you still have dog feces on your shoes. So what do you do? You take off your shoes inside of Salah and you continue praying. Do you have to make up the initial rakahs that you missed? The answer is no. Because you had tried your best, and then in that situation, you know what, you're not held accountable for it. You're not held accountable for it. So that is when forgetfulness is not an excuse, when you are a cause of your forgetfulness, and you have the ability to avoid it, yet you intentionally do not avoid it. Now, the most difficult part of tonight's discussion is about when a person is coerced. Because levels of coercion, as you'll come to see, are very, very different. A person that is very, very poor, and they're put, you know, to the knife saying, you know, give me, you know, $500. For them, $500 is a huge amount, and this is like real coercion for them. Whereas another individual, he's a millionaire, and he's being coerced with $500. $500 is peanuts for him, right? So levels of coercion would be very, very different. And that is why for this, you know, try to pay a, a, a lot of intention, uh, attention to the best of your ability, inshallah. So what is the definition of uh, under duress or coercion? Coercion or, or duress means to urge another person to perform that to which he does not consent. So he does not consent. And that which he would not choose to perform personally in a direct manner if he were left alone. So there's two key principles to understand. Number one, the person is not consenting to this act. And number two, is that if he were left alone, this is not the decision he would make. If he were left alone, this is not the decision that he would make. When it comes to coercion, there's four pillars of coercion. There's four pillars of coercion. Number one, what they call the mukrih. And the mukrih is the one who is doing the coercing. He's the one that is like the, the, the transgressor. He's the one that, that is the, the criminal. He's forcing another person. That is the mukrih. Number two, the mukrah. And he is the one that is being coerced. He is the one that is being coerced. The number three is al-mukrah bihi. Al-mukrah bihi. And this is the actual threat itself. This is the actual threat itself. And then number four is al-mukrah alayh. Al-mukrah alayh. And that is the act that one is being coerced to perform. That is the act that one is being coerced to perform. With an example, you'll understand this. So for example, Mr. X says to Mr. Y, divorce your wife or I will kill you. Divorce your wife or I will kill you. That is the full sentence over there. In this case, the one doing the coercing is Mr. X. Mr. Y is the coerced. So the, the mukrih is Mr. X. Mr. Y is the mukrah. The threat is with the threat of death. The threat is with the threat of death. And that is the, uh, the third one, the mukrah bihi. And then the fourth, the act of being coerced is the divorce of Mr. Y's wife. The divorce of Mr. Y's wife. And that's al-mukrah alayh. That is the act that he is being coerced to do. Now, 
It's very important to understand these four points over here because when a judge is making a ruling in a situation, he's, he needs to be able to identify all of these four elements. He needs to be to, uh, able to identify all of these four elements. Now, I don't want to get into to, too much detail about it, but the most important thing to understand is the level of threat. The level of threat. Now, when it comes to threat, there's obviously a difference of opinion. There's very, uh, a difference of opinion, and I just want to share the conclusions with you. So there's three conclusions when it comes to the levels of threat. Number one, all of the schools describe the threat in various ways. Their opinions concerning what constitutes a threat that leads to coercion are very similar and compatible. In general, the threat must be of such a great harm that it makes the coerced person afraid enough to perform the coerced act in order to rescue himself from the situation he is facing. Let us summarize what is being said. That the, the level of threat, it has to be serious enough that the person feels afraid enough to do the action that he is being asked. So he has to be afraid enough to be, you know, to, to do the level that he is being, uh, to, he's afraid to the level that he's willing to comply to the act that is being requested. Number two, there is no clear text of the Quran or Sunnah that defines or gives the parameters of the kind of threat that counts as coercion in the Sharia. However, examples from the Prophet's lifetime, such as the suffering that took place in Mecca and some of the Prophet's statements, one can approximately derive the nature of threat. For example, the Arabic words used to present uh, the hadith translated as under duress imply a situation in which a person is doing something that he dislikes while being forced or pressured into doing it. Summarizing this point, if at any time or point the person that's being forced starts to enjoy or no longer bothers doing that action, then this is no longer you know, considered being coerced. Going back to the issue of divorce. Mr. X is telling Mr. Y, divorce your wife or I will kill you. Mr. Y at first, he's like, you know what? You know, I don't want to die. But then he's like, you know what? I hate my wife anyways, let me divorce her, right? So this time when he divorces her, he's not doing it out of coercion, he's doing it out of the fact that he really doesn't care anymore, right? So now the ruling is going to be completely different. In ruling number one, if he's actually coerced, then obviously this divorce will not count. He's forced into this divorce, it will not count. Scenario number two, where he's like, you know what, threaten me with death, no big deal, because I don't want to be married to my wife anyways, right? So in that situation, the divorce will count. And that is what point number two is referring to. The third point, the ease of coercion differs depending on the person being coerced. The nature of the threat and the weight of the threat as compared to that of the thing being demanded. Some people are able to withstand much more than others. So, the per so that one person would be considered coerced in some cases, whereas someone else in a similar situation would not. Similarly, what is being threatened must be greater in harm than the act requested. If such is not the case, it cannot be considered a case of coercion. So there's two important things to understand from this um, you know, conclusion. The first thing that's being mentioned is level of tolerance. Everyone has a different level of tolerance, right? So for example, someone says, you know what? I will imprison you for six months if you don't do X, Y, and Z. For one person, the person like six months in jail, that's it. You know, I've already done 20. You know, six months is no big deal, right? That, so this wouldn't be coercion for him because it's not a level of threat that he's actually worried about. Another person, he's never been to jail and all he's heard is like horror stories of like people being shanked and like abused and stuff like that. He's like even 10 days in prison is like too much for me. So he's talking about level of tolerance. And the level of tolerance 
is something that the judge will make ijtihad upon. He will look at the person's nature, look at his background, look at his standing in society, and that is what he will make his decision upon. Now, what is very interesting to understand is that one of the acts of coercion in the past that people used to do is they would have their faces painted black and then they would be tied up to a donkey to walk around in the city, to walk around in the city. And the judges, they used to distinguish this between a poor person and a rich person. If a poor person came and saying, you know, I, this is what I was threatened with, that they would, paint my faint, they would paint my face black and make me walk around the tail of the donkey like this, the judge would not judge in their favor, saying that this is not coercion. You're a poor person anyways, you live in rags anyways, and you know it's not a big deal. A dignitary comes, right? A dignitary comes and he's threatened with something similar, then in that situation, the judge would rule in the favor of the dignitary and say, you know what, this is a form of coercion because he's not accustomed to this sort of stuff, right? So the judge would rule in his favor. So that's the first part of this conclusion. The second part of the conclusion, and this is important to understand, is that the act that you are being coerced to do has to be greater than the threat in order for you to actually do it. It has to be greater than the threat in order for you to actually do it. So for example, a person comes to you and says, Drink this alcohol or I will kill you. Drink this alcohol or I will kill you. What should a Muslim do in this situation? <laughs> in this situation, make a run for it. Honestly, that's a genius answer. That is a genius answer. If you can run away, yes, that is what you should do. But in the circumstance that you can't run away, there is ijma on this consensus. Someone's threatening your life and it's pertaining to something like alcohol, drink the alcohol and save your life. And save your life. There's ijma' that this is what you have to do. Because the act that is being requested is not as great as the threat. So you have to look at the consequences over here. And if a person was to think that, you know what, you know, I'm going to, 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 to be a mujahid, I'm going to you know, stand up and, and protect my faith, I'm not going to drink alcohol. The scholar said that this person would be sinful for his ignorance. He would be sinful for his ignorance. Because this is something that is known by necessity. That the Sharia came to preserve life before it came to preserve the intellect. And if you have to sacrifice your intellect for a limited amount of time to save your life overall as a whole, then this would take precedence. And that is what the, the last conclusion is saying. That is what the last conclusion is saying. Now the last portion of our discussion tonight, and I know it's gone on for a while, is we're just going to take examples uh, from various aspects of fiqh. So number one, a person misses a prayer due to forgetfulness or a mistake. We've discussed this already. In this situation, there's no sin upon him and he has to make up the salah. This is by consensus. There's no uh, sin upon him and he has to make up the salah. Number two, a Muslim kills another Muslim by accident. A Muslim kills another Muslim by accident. In this situation, there's no sin upon him. But he has to give the kafara. He has to give the kafara. And I want to explain this kafara. It's from Surah An-Nisa, verse 92. Surah An-Nisa, verse 92. It is not for a believer to kill a believer except by mistake. And whoever kills a believer by mistake, then the freeing of a believing slave and a compensation of blood money. And a compensation of blood money. So, uh, we'll come, actually, let me just read the whole thing. And a compensation of blood money presented to his family is required unless they give it up as charity on their part. 
But if he killed, uh, sorry, if, but if he, the killed, were from a people at war with you, and he was a believer, then there's only the freeing of a believing slave. And if he were from the people with whom you have a treaty, then a compensation payment presented to his family and the freeing of a believing slave. And whoever does not find one, then instead a fast for two consecutive months, seeking acceptance of repentance from Allah, and Allah is ever knowing and ever wise. So in terms of a Muslim concerning another, uh, killing another Muslim by accident, not intentionally. You know, we spoke in previous halaqas, the grave sin of intentionally killing another Muslim. But if this was to happen by accident, then in this situation, the generic scenario is you have to free a slave and you have to give blood money. If you're not able to find a slave, then you fast for two months. So in our day and age, that is what would happen. He would fast for two months consecutively. Now, in terms of blood money, who knows what blood money is based on? What is blood money based on? Go ahead, Khubeb. Uh, based upon the uh, need and the income of the provider. No. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, it depends upon the price of the camel. Fantastic. How many camels? 100. Who said 100? Ahsan, fantastic. So blood money in Islam, the Prophet ﷺ made it very, very clear that for a free uh, human being, male or female, uh, and that's with uh, actually male or female free then the, 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 the price is a hundred camels is a hundred camels now a hundred camels back at the time of the Prophet is very different from a hundred camels now right prices have you know uh, inflated like re re ridiculously crazy so some of the scholars said that we approximate how much it should be and they said roughly you know about 300,000 reals 300,000 reals that is what they said which comes out to about like 80,000 $80,000 or so, the Canadian dollars, that's how much it comes out to. We'll take questions in a bit. So that is a, 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 in the case of accidentally killing uh, a Muslim. So by mistake you did so, no sin, but you have to give uh, the kafara for it. Um, speaking during prayer out of forgetfulness. Speaking during prayer out of forgetfulness. So I've never seen this happen really, but I've seen a, a funnier example. This happened at the 8th uh, and 8th Musallah. Where uh, we're in Salah, and then a person walked in, and I don't know why, but he shouted out "Allahu Akbar." So the people, like the Imam's in his position, but the people in the back, they just went down into into ruku at that time. But in terms of <laughs> that's like prank of the century, um, you know, you want to ruin someone's Salah, that's what you do. But in terms of actually speaking accidentally in Salah, I've never seen that happen. I've seen people smiling in their Salah. Sometimes they end up laughing, that's quite common when something funny happens. But I've never seen someone speak. Generally speaking, you need like a, a second party there to, to speak to. Unless if someone has like a really bad habit of speaking to themselves, then you know that might be possible. However, this is something that's discussed in the books of fiqh. Something that's discussed in the books of fiqh. Difference of opinion, let's summarize the, the difference of opinion. That as long as it was uh, a small amount of speech, then it does not affect the Salah. It does not affect the Salah. In fact, some of the scholars said, even if it is a large amount of speech, it will not affect the Salah as long as it's unintentional. As long as it's unintentional. What is their proof for this? The proof for this is the Hadith of Dul Yadayn, where you know, the Prophet ﷺ was meant to be praying a four rak'ah prayer. After two rak'ahs, he made his salam. Dhul Yadayn, he comes to the Prophet ﷺ and he says, Ya Rasulullah, you know, we're meant to be praying for. Did revelation come down to shorten it to two? The Messenger of Allah said, no. He asked the other companions, is this really what happened? They all said yes. 
At that time, the Prophet ﷺ stood up, he prayed two more rak'ahs and completed the salah. He completed the salah. The shahid from the hadith, the operative you know, sentence from this hadith is that the Prophet ﷺ didn't repeat the first two rak'ahs. They, they were still valid. He did not need to repeat them. He did not need to repeat them. Um, there's one last section over here, but let's take examples from wudu. Examples from wudu. So a person is making wudu and you know they get a phone call and they pick up the phone while they're making wudu and phone call finishes they forget where they left off what do they do in that situation don't tell me they start over from the beginning yes they can do that if they want to but if you want to be very strict in your fiqh what would you do start off from where you know Start off from where you know that you ended. So the last point that you're certain about, that's one way of looking at it. What's the other way of looking at it? Fantastic. The Hanbali opinion is that you look at the wetness of that situation. You look at the wetness. So the last part that is, that is wet, then you go from there. And the Hanbali opinion, if there's no part that's left wet, you actually have to restart your wudu. You actually have to restart your wudu. So in summary, let's take that over again. You're making wudu, you get distracted by something, you forget where you left off. Then you look at those two things. Number one, uh, what you remember to be the last part that you watched. Number two, the part that is still wet. What if there's a conflict? The part that you remember is different than the part that's wet. Which one takes precedence? The part that's wet takes precedence over the part that you remember. The part that you remember. Scenario number two, a person makes a mistake in wudu. So for example, brand new Muslim, he is making wudu and he completely forgets that you know what, at the end of the wudu, I need to wash my feet. He goes and he prays and after the prayer, someone tells him, by the way, I saw you making wudu and you didn't wash your feet. What does this person have to do? First of all, that's very cruel. If you see that happening to someone, tell them before they start praying. Don't wait till they finish. What does this person have to do? He has to repeat the salah. He has to repeat the salah. Because over here, there's no sin upon him for praying without wudu, but he's still responsible to, for, for fulfilling that action. He's still responsible for fulfilling that action. Now, let's take um, last two scenarios, inshallah. Last two scenarios. And these are like the, the difficult ones. Making acts or stating words of unbelief under duress. Making acts or stating words of unbelief during duress. And there is a foundation in terms of a verse in the Quran in Surah Al-Nahl verse 106. Surah Al-Nahl verse 106. Where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Whoever disbelieves in Allah after his belief shall earn the wrath of Allah except for the one who is forced to renounce his religion while his heart is secure in faith. But those who willingly open their breasts to disbelief, upon them is the wrath of Allah, and for them is a great punishment. For them is a great punishment. This is the story for which companion? Who remembers? Go ahead. Fantastic. This is the story of Ammar, that he was being threatened by the Quraysh, and he comes to the Messenger of Allah وسلم, he says, Ya Rasulullah, I'm destroyed. He says, why? He said, the Quraysh, they forced me to, to utter words of disbelief. They said they were going to kill me if I didn't do so. What did the Messenger of Allah say to him? Who remembers? What did he say to him? It's on your tongue, I know it. If they come back, do it again, fantastic. The Prophet ﷺ, he said to him that if they were to come back and force you the same thing, go ahead and do it, it's not a problem. But he also made sure, how was your heart at that time? He said, Ya Rasulullah, my heart was filled with Iman. And then he said, if they were to come back and do it, then go ahead and utter those words, utter those words. Now the reason why there's ikhtilaf over here is because the scholars differed. Is there differentiation between an act of disbelief 
and a statement of disbelief, right? An act of disbelief and a statement of disbelief. Now, there's a lot of ikhtilaf amongst the madhahib on this issue. We want to summarize the scenario for you, and that is that there is no difference. There is no difference. That an action or a statement in the sight of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would be considered the same. An action or a statement would be considered the same. But in this situation, you need to understand the various things. Number one, the level of threat. Someone says, you know, I'll throw a rock at you unless you commit kufr. You're not going to commit kufr at that time, right? There has to be some sort of physical, you know, dangerous threat. Like I will chop off a limb, I will kill you. You know, those sort of things are the types of serious threats where a person would be allowed to do so. And in our day and age, you know, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect all the Muslim communities uh, across the world. But it seems like this is going to end up happening, right? Look at the way things are being happening in Europe. Sisters in hijab being attacked, sisters in niqab being attacked, and all sorts of things happening. A time will come where someone will say, look, you know, denounce your faith or, or I will kill you. The Sharia has given that exemption. The Sharia has given that exemption that you denounce your faith. And, you know, this is something that you're allowed to do. A second point of uh, difference of opinion. Which one is actually better? Should a person be patient upon this? Or should a person take the concession? Should a person be patient? Or should a person take the concession? And there, the reason of, of um, you know, this discussion is one hadith narrated in Ibn Majah where the Prophet وسلم, he says, لا تشركوا بالله وإن قطعتم وحركتم That do not associate partners with Allah even if you are torn to pieces or set on fire. Even if you are torn to pieces or set on fire. And this is what the difference of opinion was on that which one is better? Is it better to be patient or is it better to take the concession? And in this situation, the scholars agreed that if a person took, did not take the concession, he would be a shaheed. He would be a shaheed. And if he does take the concession, then this is something that is still good and he will be rewarded for taking the concession as well. But Ibn Rajab, rahimahullah, he seems to lead to the fact that it is better for the person to be patient and die shaheed at that time. But over here, the concession is still there for him. The last scenario we will be taking, and that is where a person says, if you do not kill XYZ, I will kill you. What happens in this scenario? In this scenario, there is ijma' that you are not allowed to kill the other person. One person's life is not more valuable than the others. Another scenario to this is that if you do not kill XYZ, I will kill one of your family members. Same thing applies, consensus, you're not allowed to harm that other human being. You're not allowed to harm that other human being. So I hope you know, these examples have given you insight in terms of how the Sharia you know, looks at human capability and human accountability. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has been you know, very generous and, and very forgiving. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions, That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He pardons much. But we still have a level of responsibility in terms of our actions. We still have a level of responsibility in terms of our actions. Wallahu ta'ala a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam wa baraka ala nabiyyana Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam.